brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Prep.com, on time, on target, and we are live. This is actually the first live stream we've done in a long in, time. Yeah, a couple of weeks because we had major camera issues. People, <laughs> if they watched like the last two live streams, they were like, what are you guys, in a dark basement or something? <laughs> because, yeah, we had all these lighting issues, which we have now fixed, thanks to Grill, our uh, tech guy. But we're live in studio with former Navy SEAL Brent Gleason, the author of Taking Point, a Navy SEAL's 10 Fail-Safe Principles for leading through change. Excited to have you on, man. Oh, thanks so much. Glad to be here, guys. And you can see his lovely wife in the uh, sort of in the, the shot. Screen. There you go. <laughs> just, in, just in case people are wondering, that's not my handbag. You <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the first thing I guess we'll get into, we were talking about uh, Chris Fussell, who we had formerly on the show, another yeah. former Navy SEAL, and that you guys are, have both written these books that are using the principles you've learned in the SEALs and converted that to the business world, which is what you've been doing since your SEAL career. Correct, correct. Yeah, it. Uh, a lot of people ask, when, especially when you're writing the book, you know, why this book, why now? Just like you know, your books and things that you've written. Um, but uh, since being out of the SEAL teams, I've built and sold a couple companies and also led those companies through major transformations, have dealt with a lot of change. And as an entrepreneur, uh, there's a lot of things you obviously learn on the battlefield, so to speak. And uh, you don't know what you don't know until you have to deal with those uh, transitional challenges. That's for sure. Uh, yeah, just like in special operations and, and in today's more volatile, unsettled business landscape, you know, you're moving at the speed of war and uh, business leaders and managers and organizations are forced almost sometimes to grow faster with fewer resources, uh, focusing less on the financial strategy side of their business just to compete and thrive in this 21st century landscape. And a lot of the uh, structural and cultural approaches I talk about in the book just so happen to align very well with uh, Chris's book, uh, One Mission, and I actually reference that book in there. And we both draw correlations between um, the military in its entirety, but also more specifically the special operations community's uh, almost ongoing transformation that we've been in because we entered these conflicts, you know, essentially as a kind of slow-moving, very siloed 20th century right, organization, right. yet we're fighting a very decentralized enemy, and therefore, just like today's business organizations that are more successful than some, uh, we had to become a bit more decentralized in our approach to leadership, decision-making, communication, both internally and, of course, externally. So, well, What have you seen, I guess, as an entrepreneur, and I take it as a small business owner, what are some of those big changes that you've seen your companies go through that you've had to make? Most of the big changes are driven oftentimes by good things, such as, as growth or rapid growth. And you have uh, to figure out what to do with and it. And you have to figure out what to do with that growth. And, and there's plenty of research and books out there that shows you as your headcount and revenue grows in an organization, you'll hit these inevitable barrier growths. But then you have to continually transform your structures, your systems, even a bit of your culture and your people practices to get over that hump. And then you'll grow 
the next level. Maybe it's 25 people, then you grow to 50, then to 100. And so you're in a constant state of change, but organizations that get it wrong will hit that barrier and kind of stagnate or start shrinking if they don't face those changes head on and create a more sustainable, uh, scalable business that will get over that hurdle and the next hurdle to come. So. So this book is also some practical business advice. It's not. Uh, not, yeah, not I mean, how would you how would you describe it? Is it a I'm, leadership book? Is yeah, it a, I'm, I'm very. It, it's a book about business transformation. Okay. But I'm very clear that you know because a lot of people are like oh I can't wait to read your book but I, I want to be clear that you know this is not a 300 page war memoir. Uh, it is nor <laughs> is it a combat book disguised as a business leadership right, book. It right. is a very or at least my goal is for it to be a very prescriptive uh, tool for. Um, leaders, managers, or anybody in an organization to understand how to deal with change. It has like usable advice and Actual ideas, tools right? that tell you actually how to do it. Um, you can only get so detailed, otherwise the book would be 3,000 pages and nobody would buy it. <laughs> um, but it's got actual tools, so all of the 10 principles have a lot of methodologies and a lot of fact-based research um, from global consulting firms or other case studies, and there's a lot of case studies in the book that support these. So it's not just my high-level theories of how special operations, leadership philosophies, and building our high-performance team cultures apply to business, but actually how you can apply those in both large and small companies. One of the things uh, that I've found just in my own experience and also observing friends of mine is that we often come out of the military and we carry this, um, it could be arrogance, it could be other things with us. Um, But I I guess the way I would put it is we get out and we feel like we should be the special forces of the business world or the Navy (laughs) SEAL of the business world. But it it doesn't work that way. You're transitioning into a totally different world. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you handled that in your own transition from the military to business. It it was very humbling. (laughs) Come out. I got out and I went to graduate school at that time, no initial aspirations of being an entrepreneur. And then teamed up with, uh, with a guy I met in graduate school, very cliche, I know, and started our first company. But then, of course, you go from you know, a guy or a couple guys with an idea or a business plan, and then you quickly become you know, a leader and a manager of people, and you're building this brand and this product. And especially if you go out and you raise money, all you're thinking about is growth and sales and shareholder value. You're not thinking about building those foundational pieces. And I talk a lot about that in the book, too, those, those critical growth steps that we you know, we say don't don't run to your death. You know, in special operations, take it slow, assess risk, use speed and aggression as necessary. But oftentimes, we skip those critical foundational pieces like culture and values and understanding the organization's true purpose. And that's what today's workforce cares about. But when you don't focus on those things, you're going to hit one of those barriers, and the organization's going to either stall or fall apart unless you pump the brakes and really try to figure those out. So those are the critical, very costly mistakes that I've made uh, as building this wisdom that I have. That they're just a series of mistakes. So you have so to set the conditions. You, you really do have to set the conditions and, and the, the vision for an organization, just like, I mean, for us on the Naval Special Warfare side, if you think about you know, our, our culture and our vision, the, the SEAL ethos did not even come about until 2005. We'd been moving at the speed of war in our post-9-11 reality like we all had been, and leadership finally realized that we had no defining uh, concept of who we are, who we needed to be as an organization. Therefore, you know, how do you make decisions on your talent acquisition programs and who to bring into that culture and how to define, you know, what missions we should undertake and what what our purpose is. Um, And a lot of organizations, even big ones out there, still don't have those things clearly defined and the people in them don't understand what the vision or culture is really it's, supposed to be. It's interesting you, you mentioned that because the uh, the Ranger Creed was created, I believe, in 1974. 
four. Yeah. I, I, don't quote me on that. Right. Uh, Command Sergeant Major Gentry wrote the Ranger Creed. And th- this was a time where the Ranger battalions were created to serve as sort of a role model for the rest of the military because post-Vietnam, those were right. like bad years for the Army, for the military as a whole. And I think the Ranger Creed was created as something like each soldier can kind of snap link themselves into and read that and understand, like, this right. is our purpose. This is what we do here. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, it's something. I think it's really a page we took out of uh, out of your book, as far as realizing that we needed a creed, we needed an ethos. And I actually just read an article the other day uh, by a former Vietnam era frogman, kind of even now analyzing our ethos again, saying is even though it's newer since mm-hmm. 2005, but you know, is it still relevant? Is it too lofty of a vision? Do guys really connect with it? And they've surveyed a lot of the guys in the community, and some do. Some are, you know, don't care. <laughs> and some say, no, I don't connect with this. It, it just, it's too much. You know, it needs to be concise. It needs to be more clear. Um, but again, you're never going to satisfy sure, everybody sure. with these types of things. It's never going to Yeah, and, I mean, the thing with a creed or an ethos also is, like, it's something that's, like, aspirational. Like, none of us can right. live up to it every day right. of our lives. <laughs> Way up here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if you try to, though, you're a great person, you'll end up being a great person. It's like... You know, if you try to live up to the Ten Commandments every day, you're probably going to be a very good person. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, everyone's going to fall short somewhere on there at some point in life. Yeah. The last line of the Celio ethos says, I will not fail. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, we all fail every day in little micro moments uh, yeah, pretty yeah. much in every phase of our life. So, As- again, it's aspirational. aspirational not, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a good goal to have. Right. <laughs> so the the, uh, the ten fail-safe principles in the book are culture, trust, accountability, mindset, preparation, transmission, inclusion, fatigue, discipline, and resiliency. Obviously can't get into all of them here on the podcast. Sure. But is there one that you want to focus on that means a lot to you? Yeah, I think that uh, the first part of the book, so all those 10 principles, as you see, are broken into three parts. One is about um, building a change culture. So really understanding in any organization or team or business, really taking a look at auditing your own organizational culture and trying to figure out, is this a culture we want for our organization? Is it haphazard or is it by design? And is that by design culture in line with our strategic vision, with our strategic objectives? Do the people in that culture embody shared values that align with achieving our mission? Uh, Identifying the strengths that can be prime movers, especially when an organization is facing any type of change or transformation. Identifying the weaknesses, of course, that will stand in the way uh, of change or growth. Weaknesses that don't align with what you're trying to accomplish as a, a team or organization. Uh, so our, the book is very culture-based. That's why the, 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 the first part of it is about uh, using uh, what I defined as a culture-driven transformation model and the two most important cultural pillars that align very much with special operations and with great organizations in the business world are uh, accountability uh, and trust, and both of those factors being an internal function and an external function. But not just from a high level, okay, we need to be more accountable, we need to trust each other as a team, as an organization, but really understanding the economic impact those disciplines have on an organization. And there's plenty of studies out there that show and research that have been done on, on measuring trust in an organization internally amongst the team, amongst the peers, managers and leaders, and also externally with customers, strategic partners, clients, things like that, and also accountability. Um, uh, one of my favorite books that I mention in there is uh, called Change the Culture, Change the Game, and it's really about building a culture of accountability, which is something we strive for 
uh, in special operations. It's a philosophy that's kind of hammered into you from day one. Uh, do, we all, do we always nail it perfectly? Absolutely not. <laughs> but we try to hold ourselves and our peers to the highest standard, to the highest level of accountability, which is what great organizations do in the business world. And there's a lot of case studies in there and in other books, too, that show measurable financial returns when you can focus on those cultural pieces, not just a set of financials, making financialized decisions on everything the company does, but focusing on the people, the culture, the core values, and making sure those align with those strategic objectives and that and how those drive the financial returns and growth the company wants. Hey, guys, hope that you're enjoying this podcast with Brent Gleason, former Navy SEAL, of course. Real honor to have him in studio, meeting him as well as his wife and just great people. Hopefully, he'll be back here soon. There's more to this podcast, of course, but I just wanted to ask, wouldn't it be great to be pain-free like you used to feel? BioWave is the non-opioid effective way to block chronic or acute pain at the push of a button. VVA recognized, VA prescribed, FDA cleared, and made in America, BioWave is used by more than 30 VAs and even professional sports teams. If you are a veteran or active military that needs help managing pain, go to BioWave.com and learn how to get treatment at no cost. Now, if you go to the website, I was checking out BioWave.com slash customers, you'll see that people in the NBA, NHL, MLB, NFL, Olympians, and, and even those at SEAL Team 1 and so many other places are using BioWave, spoken so highly of. Um, and you can check out the testimonials as well, which is at BioWave.com slash testimonials. And for our veterans in the audience, you'll want to check out BioWave.com slash VA. So they're really putting it all out there so you could do your research, do your due diligence, and pick it up because it's just a great product. BioWave.com, smarter pain blocking technology. Uh, so with that, let's get back into this interview with Brent Gleason. Obviously, there's some definitely some self-deprecating humor in the book and plenty of embarrassing stories. Uh, I don't know if you've ever fallen into a cesspool two minutes into a combat mission, but... No, I've heard stories. <laughs> I've a got, lot of cesspools in Iraq. I've, I've, got, I've gotten that, you know, ankle deep in the, uh, in the shit pit in, yeah. in Afghanistan. I never fell in, though. No, that was one of my glaring errors, but... Um, Did you have to go to, like, the, the med shed and, like, get shots and everything after that? Uh, I, I didn't. Now that I think about it, there's a lot of... Uh, Bro, yeah, you might want to get looked at. <laughs> Maybe there's some answer to some medical problems I have today, but uh, let's just say that uh, my camis got thrown in the burn pit as yeah. soon as we got back. But unfortunately, that was one of the many raids that we did that was supposed to last two hours and lasted about 24 hours, covered in human waste. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I know. I got a lot of shit from that from the guys. <laughs> uh, see what I did there? Um, no, I, I think some of the, the, the core takeaways, though, and the book's written to be obviously entertaining, inspirational, but not just for current you know, business managers or leaders or people working in the business world, but also, uh, you know, like myself and others, aspiring entrepreneurs and, and hopefully giving folks the tools uh, to avoid the mistakes that I made, you know, those costly mistakes that we make as entrepreneurs or people starting out in business and uh, hopefully avoiding some of those mistakes because one of the core functions of, of, any, of leadership in any organization is leading change, whether you're talking about business, sports team, military, politics. It's all about taking something good, hopefully, and making it great or taking something not so good and making it much better. And that requires a lot of change, a lot of transformation, and really a mindset shift, uh, not just at the senior leadership levels, but 
uh, at, uh, and then it has to permeate the entire organization. But until, just like in our post-9-11 special operations transformation, it really started, and Stanley McChrystal talks about this in Team of Teams, and Chris Fussell talks about it in One Mission. It really started with senior leadership saying, hey, we really need to think about our reality in a much different way. You know, we're not fighting this organizational structure. We're fighting a very decentralized enemy. So we need to become more decentralized. And that was a, as you can imagine, you're talking about very traditional military hierarchy. That was a major uh, mindset shift uh, for people to take on before we could make it a cultural transition and a structural uh, transition. I, I mean, I would argue in the military side, we're still having that fight. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, the, yeah. Um, the whole unconventional warfare model is just antithetical to the way the military <laughs> operates. Yeah. You know, and we still struggle with that. I mean, I, I can see what, you know, General McChrystal was trying to accomplish, and he did some pretty impressive things. At the same time, the, we were still operating in a military hierarchy. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it was definitely a hierarchical military structure. But hierarchies do offer some benefits as opposed to decentralized models. Yeah. Right? If the colonel gets killed, the major knows he's taken over. Right. You know, we kill an al-Qaeda guy, and everyone's looking at each other like, oh, who's in charge now? <laughs> and they get to fight each other for a couple of weeks and yeah. before they figure that yeah. out. No, you're absolutely right, and one of the things they talk about, and I allude to in the book as well, as far as structure goes, is it's not so much uh, uh, removing the hierarchy, but it's overlaying right. uh, networks. Uh, like that, changing that, how people relate to exactly. each other. Exactly. So instead of just having this, you also have dotted line mm-hmm. reporting structures that loosen things up a little bit. There's a little bit more autonomy, more decentralized communication and decision making. So, that, yeah, absolutely. It's cool. So, uh, you know, we kind of, this is soft rip radio and we didn't even ask you, you know, could you tell us about your time uh, yeah. in the Navy SEALs? <laughs> yeah, what, so that's important. You know, well, I was thinking the same thing. It's kind of a funny story and we, we talked about this earlier, but um, so I grew up in Dallas um, and uh, did my undergrad education at Southern Methodist University. I got degrees in finance and economics and had no aspirations of joining the military. My dad was Marine Reservist in Vietnam, never deployed, uh, and never pushed on my twin brother nor I. You guys need to need to serve. And keep in mind, this was just right before 9-11. So right, right. the mentality was to, of service was, was a lot different. It was more of a, maybe a personal challenge or you know, a resume builder or right. wh- whatever it is. Some college School money loans. Yeah, whatever. exactly, yeah. exactly. And so I started working as a financial analyst for a year, but I had... Uh, a roommate of mine that had graduated with me, he went into the Navy, uh, intelligence officer, now is the youngest ever director of the counterterrorism op center, has a, had a phenomenal non-special operations career, but has done a lot of, let's just say he knows a lot more than you and I do about what's <laughs> really going on. And had, we had another buddy who was a year behind us, um, who was a senior while I was working, and he was one of these guys who wanted to join the Navy and try out for the SEAL teams. It's what he'd wanted to do since he was a little boy. And so we started training together just to help him prepare and a way for me to stay fit. And then I started reading some more books about the history of the Naval Special Warfare community and everything from underwater demolition teams in World War II to Vietnam, Korea, you know, Middle East operations. And gradually, obviously, became more and more fascinated by, you know, the history and the culture. Of they that. sucked you in. Yeah, it just, I, I got, <laughs> I started drinking the Kool-Aid and got sucked into the, to, to the Black Abyss. I'm assuming you had to have read Dick Marcinko's book. Well, I feel like that's the first one I read. All of, that that. <laughs> of course. And I was like, I want to bench press 500 pounds. I want to <laughs> eat glass and shit fire. <laughs> but uh, then I realized later that I have never once bench pressed 500 pounds in my entire life. <laughs> Bare chested in the snow. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uphill both ways. Yeah. Um, quickly realized that it's just we're all just regular people but um 
So read a lot of those fiction books, a lot of nonfiction books. Anyways, we started training together, and that coupled with the rather boring nature of my entry-level financial analyst position, uh, finally decided to live a life without regret and take on this challenge and quit my job. And then he and I moved up to Crested Butte, Colorado. Um, and how old were you at this point? I was had graduated work for a year, so 22, 23. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... Uh, so we moved to Crested Butte for six months, trained for an additional, uh, you know, period of time during that six months for, you know, four or five hours a day um, at about 10,000 feet altitude to get into really, really good physical condition. And then early 2000, joined the Navy, went through basic, uh, joined BUDS class 235, um, about 23 of us graduated, and then I was assigned to SEAL Team 5. Uh, Afghanistan at this point had, had already spun up, so 9-11 was literally two days before we started SQT or SEAL Holy qualification shit. training. Wow. So that was, again, a whole instant, as you know, mindset transformation yeah. of here we go, guys. And so you're going to be the ones. Yeah. <laughs> so we, so we, we checked back in, you know, a day early to SQT and they didn't accelerate the, the training pipeline necessarily because there was already guys teed up, ready to go over team one, went over there. And obviously our tier one assets were boots on the ground very shortly thereafter. And so we did our, our work up and then, Iraq spun off. So we, uh, my task unit from five uh, was actually the first SEAL task unit operating in Baghdad, Ramadi, Fallujah. We got there in April 2003. Wow. So we kind of, I wouldn't say rewrote the book, but definitely tested the book on close quarters combat. Right, and cap right. These capture or kill missions we were doing to hunt down these guys, basically raids or whatever you want to call them. And uh, so it was, a, you know, again, another fast-paced time of constant transformation, always filtering lessons learned back from every single mission we did. Op tempo for that type of mission profile back then was super high. We were doing ops almost every night. And we go for, you know how it is, you go, you'd go fast and then nothing happens. And you go fast and nothing happens. The sandstorm comes through and you're yeah. like, thank God, I get to sleep. <laughs> our, no, our very first mission, it's kind of a funny story, we were not even in country yet. So we, we had been staged at Ali Asalim Air Base while um, traditional forces, and I think SEAL Team 3 was with them, pushing up through from the Afaw Peninsula up to Baghdad. And then we trans uh, we did our turnover with Team 3 in Ali Asalim Air Base in Kuwait. But while we were there, we hadn't even gone in Iraq yet. We were given our very first mission. And the first mission was to assault and capture the uh, Mercurian uh, Dam and hydroelectric power plant uh, that was in central Iraq. Um, Intel, which was, this won't shock you, but a little bit spotty, <laughs> a little bit gray, had said that uh, retreating Iraqi forces and some um, insurgent factions had taken control of this dam, kind of like ISIS had done in, in the recent past. Uh, they were going to potentially destroy the dam, flood the areas below, cause mass power electrical outages, flooding the areas below, too, to help sort of slow the advances of American troops through that area. What dam was this? I'm not probably not pronouncing it right, but Mercurian. Mercurian. Okay. No, it's just I, yeah. interesting. I ask because uh, my unit. I wasn't there. I was in. Um, I was in actually the indoctrination program. I was in RIP when the invasion happened, uh, and three seven five hit Haditha Dam, mm -hmm. and and for the same reasons, yeah. there's fears that they were going to break the dam and flood everything downriver. Yeah. yeah, we we spent a little time at Haditha too when we had our SDB teams uh, diving the lakes looking for. Weapons of mass destruction. No shit, really. <laughs> they didn't find any, but uh, yeah, I'll that's, get into that. In that's a an interesting story. Yeah, <laughs> but um, the, I, I, this story is about sandstorms, so it was you know first combat mission for everybody in the in the troop. I mean, obviously, no, no none of us had been right. to war right. before, and you know some of these guys have gone off to tier one units and had amazing careers. But for all of us at that one time, this was our very first mission, and it was a pretty 
complex, high-profile mission with we were uh, integrated with the Polish Grom. So we had about a total. So do you know Drago and oh yeah, oh yeah, worked with him on that first tour in '03 uh, every night, and um, so we had about six or seven fully loaded Chinook helicopters with our task unit, two SEAL platoons, a SEAL mobility platoon, two uh, two troops from Polish Grom. That was about a three and a half hour insert uh, oh, to the shit. target. So you can imagine how your body's feeling by that time. To you know, fast rope in. We were going to be the primary assault force. Uh, the Polish Grom and the mobility guys would provide a blocking force as well as well as securing some of the secondary structures surrounding this plant. And we were taking down the main structure. But you know, first day we're we're a go. We're a green light. We're all geared up. Literally, the the rotors are turning on the Chinook. This will sound very familiar, I'm sure. We literally we load on the birds, and then all of a sudden, the Kank bird flies in. <laughs> Mission gets rolled 24 hours because of sandstorms. Oh, okay. <laughs> Same thing ha- happened the next night. Same thing happened the third night. By the fourth night, we finally got green lit, and uh, so it was just like this <laughs> emotional roller yeah, coaster. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're a go, you're a no go. It's the hurry up and wait military yeah. mentality. So no, that's interesting. I'd never heard that story before. It's a new one for me. Yeah, yeah, but it, uh, it was a good way to cut our teeth and learning what. Uh, what what this type of mission profile was going to look like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's like that was like the whole uh, attitude or the whole, um, you know, just feeling when we were doing like all those time sensitive yeah. targets. Like it's on, <laughs> it's off, it's on, it's off. It's on, blah, 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 blah. You know, you're going outside the gate. You don't even have a grid location you're right. going to yet. You're like, what the fuck? And I was a driver, on? so that was always a frustrating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, towards the end of my second deployment, I was the um, – I was a TC on the lead striker um, for our convoy, and I, there were times when we went outside the gate. I didn't even have a grid location. I'm like I'm still waiting on that, and then I'm having to like program it into the computer as we <laughs> on the drive fly. down the street in Missoula. Yeah. I'm like, what the? Well, and a lot of our things in, in the early days in, in 03 in Baghdad, it was you know Baghdad, Ramadi, Fallujah. It's about the size of the Dallas Fort Worth area. Yeah. Not only so we were using Humvees, and before. IEDs and things like that became more prevalent. We were using Humvees and trucks as insert platforms, and some nights the target could be 10 minutes outside of our compound, mm-hmm. 30 minutes outside of our compound. Sometimes we were doing two, three hits in one night, but some of them would come up last minute, or we'd yep. gather some intel from one target and be like, hey, let's go hit this other target. Sometimes they were dry holes. Sometimes they You're were. on your way back home for hot sandwiches. Yeah, no, exactly. And then you're like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were also in the SEAL teams then. I mean, that, during that t- time period, I mean, you saw, speaking of change, I mean, you, yeah. you must have seen that dramatic change happen in, you know, the Special Operations Task Force and Naval Special Warfare. When, like, I think it's still changing. We all evolved so quickly. It, it was structurally, the way we deploy, our, our training cycles, everything was in a constant state of flux mm-hmm. as far as where teams would deploy, when, you know, and it, even just in the, you know, I wasn't in all that long, but even in that brief period, we changed significant things as far as our deployment cycles and which teams would go where. You know, sometimes it was a, a whole team would be going to one theater. Sometimes they'd split the team up and send them to two or three different theaters, and then they'd swap them <laughs> halfway through so guys could get, because everybody was bitching if they went to Paycom and they wanted to go to Centcom. <laughs> people didn't want to be sitting people, in Guam or People the were bitching about going to Paycom. Like, I know. I, I want that I, I was like, I want to go to Paycom. <laughs> yeah. I, I never got to do a Paycom deployment. I went and visited uh, the Philippines for work uh, last year, and I was like, this is bullshit i got sent to iraq and afghanistan and there, there were like first group guys who were getting sent to the philippines like for real how did this shake out yeah yeah it's just uh it's just how it is but uh and my last one was in africa which there were some cool parts about that but uh again, where, in, where in africa did they send you um it, it, we were in kenya 
sort of. That was our sort of mission profile. Was It wasn't a traditional uh, team or troop deployment. It was uh, me and several other team, team guys supported by a, a SWIC team. Uh, we were there basically teaching them. This was at least the initial premise of why we were there. There were some political reasons, and there were some other things we were doing up north uh, of Kenya um, on, in our spare time. But uh, we were there essentially teaching the Kenyan Navy. I'm going to use that term loosely. <laughs> Don't think Navy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in maritime interdiction. So policing their waters a little bit better against piracy and, and, and things like that. And so I was one of the primary instructors, and we developed this curriculum. And I quickly realized that most of these guys couldn't even swim. So I also started swim lessons <laughs> for everybody. And uh, I would say running a range with some of these guys and the crappy weapons they had was more dangerous than most areas I've been in. in yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you feel safer I getting shot I had full body out, armor yeah. on. <laughs> Literally, you would sneeze, and they'd have a negligent discharge. <laughs> getting them to stop firing on full auto every time they pull the trigger, that's a real, that's a real challenge. Yeah. It's a real challenge. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a cultural transformation <laughs> <laughs> yes yes someone used to write that book yeah. about how we can do foreign internal defense better than we do because that is a massive talk yeah. about culture shock jeez yeah yeah totally <laughs> but the, yeah a lot of those experiences uh dealing with all those changes and then when i became an entrepreneur kind of led me to uh, see these direct correlations. And, and there's a lot of um, theory and talk and, and writings about, I see it more and more every day, whether it's on LinkedIn or another, uh, I write for Forbes and for Inc. as well. And a lot of people, as, as we have, of course, droves of veterans entering the workforce and bringing with them uh, those experiences and how they can apply some of that stuff, not all of it, obviously, well, to, to building better let, businesses. Let me ask you this question, because I, I asked, uh, we had Dr. Leonard Wong on from the Army War College uh, in the last podcast, and I asked him this too. Uh, it'd be interesting to hear your perspective. It seems like there is um, a, a huge drive within American corporations to reach in towards guys like you, and like, can you bring your military experience into our corporate culture and teach our executives to do what you do? But at the same time, there, it seems like there's the, the military people like Stan McChrystal are looking at corporations like, man, we need to emulate what those guys are doing, bring <laughs> that into the military. And I just wonder, how, what do you make of this dynamic? Yeah, I, I've seen it a lot and, and being you know out there on the speaking circuit. And, and that's why oftentimes these organizations, to your point, bring in someone like me or some of the other uh, guys like us out there to come whether it's a keynote presentation or some ongoing leadership development or consulting or whatever it is, they want to, uh, whether it's even just a high-level fascination about special operations, which sometimes it is just, <laughs> just yeah, purely yeah. that, they think it's cool, and they think that they could at least glean a little bit of um, uh, learnings from that, that their organization, especially if maybe they're, you know, they've got people you know, in upward mobility positions becoming leaders that don't really have any real leadership training uh, or very little management training. Uh, and how maybe we can teach some of the philosophies and approaches uh, to those leaders. Um, but, but sometimes they do really have a strong uh, belief in uh, the practices that we deploy in, special op in the special operations community that can really make organizations better. And there's a lot more content and books uh, out there now about that. But at the same time, to your point, I see the, other, the flip side of it as well. But only in small pockets of organizations that I've seen are, are doing it really, really well, where maybe we can learn some of what they're doing and apply that to you know our culture and structure uh, in the military in its entirety or, or structurally. But I think the one of the things that we do really well, especially in special operations, is really uh, focusing on the engagement uh, and training and development of our people. Uh, we invest 
again, it's it's not an easy model to trans translate in the corporate world because we spend millions of dollars on like each person, as far as their professional development over the course of their career. Mm-hmm. And now, for for seals, for example, it takes about eighteen months and costs million millions bucks, <laughs> at least more now, uh, uh, over a million dollars to create one guy. one guy. And then we have to focus on things like retention and family resiliency and all these other programs to make sure we keep those guys around a little bit longer because we're investing so much. Just like in a company that wants to build a great culture and, and, uh, and implement great talent acquisition programs, but they also want to keep those people because it costs you twice a person's salary to replace them and then you have turnover and that affects morale. And uh, I think both sides of the fence we're trying to learn from each other and how to better implement those things i think one of the big things too is uh unit cohesion that's something that the military that the special operations community does very well and uh you know i laugh because you know civilians they often think military life is uh like something like in band of brothers or something and i i love band of brothers great uh but we, I never felt like we were a band of brothers. At least that wasn't my experience in the military. It seemed like we all hated each other. I was going to say brothers that fight a lot. Yeah. Like, it was like everyone hated each other, but we had this mission, and everyone coalesced around each other and worked together to get the job done at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, even a guy that maybe, like, yeah, you're on the verge of having a fist fight with yeah. back in the rear, but, you know, if you get shot, he'll run out through gunfire to come oh, yeah. get you. Yeah. And that's a very interesting thing that you, you just don't see in the, I don't think you would see in the corporate world. Correct. And, and nor would anybody get away with that in the corporate world. Right. I remember just, just, I learned that in Buds. I remember one of our, one of our uh, enlisted guys uh, in our Buds class uh, knocked out one of our officers because they got in, <laughs> they, they got, and nobody got in trouble, you know, and then they worked it out, you know, they, they worked it out and, you know, 30 minutes later, all was good. But I was like, holy hell, <laughs> what's happening? I thought this was the military. And then I learned it even more, uh, more specifically when I got to the team. And, but again, keep in mind, you know, and you know this very well, of course, you've got all these traditionally A-type aggressive personalities yeah. living together, working together, traveling together. You're around each other all the time. Yeah. And so, and everybody's got an opinion on how things should be done. Uh, you know, whether it's in training and real world scenarios or in where to go eat, you know, uh, yeah. when, when you're, when you're, when you're finished with the training day and, uh, you know, I've seen, you said something, you know, almost getting in a fist fight. No, there's plenty of fist fights <laughs> and guys beating up on each other or they want to beat up on the new guys and the new guys are all hiding. So they beat each other up. <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty fascinating, actually. But when it's time to work, it's time to work. And you see this flip switch instantly, and guys go to work. Everybody's working together as a cohesive unit, to your point. And it's, it, it's amazing to see. But yeah. sometimes, you know, when you're not, you know, on a mission or, you know, do, doing your training, it's, uh, yeah, it gets a little messy. But, and I, I, may, I make it clear, too, that people always think we have this perfect culture in special operations. And it's not perfect. You know, we, we, we fight a lot. We've got a lot of infighting. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's a it's a result of uh, of the environment uh, that that we have to exist in. Well, there's a cost too, isn't there? Yeah. There's a trade off, and you know it seems like more and more we're all starting to see the the repercussions, you know, of the what we've put these guys through, what we've asked them to do, and yep. then now they're back home. A lot of them go on a civvy street, and uh, and there's consequences of all that. You know, guys, you know, not uh, adapting to civilian life very well. Guys having all kinds of issues. You know, so it's all something you have to. You know, we operate at this like very high level. Yeah, can you operate there forever? <laughs> yeah, it, maybe it's, not. It, it, well, obviously a big 
topic of conversation now is, is military transition and special yeah. operations transition. I, I see it a lot very closely. I'm on the executive board of the SEAL Family Foundation, so we support the families of both active uh, operators and our, obviously our fallen operators. And uh, our main mission is family resiliency, but that's a big topic. Yeah, it deals yeah. with the operator and the issues and uh, you know things like TBI, traumatic brain injury now, and you can imagine you know, you're breaching targets night after night. Those are micro concussions that guys are getting, just like we talk about in sports and the NFL. That affects guys. That exacerbates post-traumatic stress symptoms. And, of course, that affects family life. That also affects the operator's ability to sustain and either whether they stay in or when they get out and their ability to execute in the civilian world. Yeah. Um, and I've seen guys get out and do amazing things. Uh, you know, guys like Brandon, guys like you, guys uh, who've become entrepreneurs or excelled in the business world or whatever they've done. But then, of course, there's guys who, uh, who are suffering from uh, things that are practically debilitating right. and giving right. them uh, so many obstacles, both in their family life and their p- professional life, that, uh, that they can't execute on the things, even if they're trying to. So The book, once again, is Taking Point, A Navy SEAL's 10 Fail-Safe Principles for Leading Through Change. It comes out next week, so pre-order it. I was looking on Amazon. You can get a 1747 yeah. hardcover, um, $12.99 on Kindle. So, I mean, those are some great deals. And pre-orders help with the rankings in the book. So um, yep. pre-ordered, I, I just wanted to get in here, though, because we're getting some great questions on Facebook Live. Um, and I don't want to ignore our viewers. Yeah, of course. And by the way, if you're enjoying this, like it, share it. We love um, you know getting that visibility up and getting more, more new viewers. Um, William Dixon asks, how do you suggest surviving the first year in business? Uh, if we're talking about being, uh, well, I can, I can answer that in two questions. One is you're working for another organization or as an entrepreneur. Um, what, I know, what I know most intimately is as an entrepreneur, uh, really look, learning from the mistakes that I made, is really focusing, again, on those foundational pieces of whatever you're trying to create, its purpose, its vision, uh, you know, the, the culture of the people you want to integrate around that you know, business concept or that idea or that brand, uh, and, and don't skip those fundamental phases because we, we want to we run off to glory and sell, sell, sell and grow, 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 but uh, eventually you'll hit a wall if you don't try and integrate those, those pieces and make decisions based on those, val- those shared values the culture and the vision of that organization. Now, if you're coming out and transitioning from the military and joining another organization, which of course we've got droves of thousands of people doing that, you know, every month these days, it's really about finding an organization. It's almost kind of a similar answer, finding an organization that you do have shared values with, that you believe in their culture, you believe in what they're trying to accomplish. It's something that we hold dearly in the military and, you know, in our in our units and, and where we reside, whatever that job is in the military. And at least most people do. I, I can speak about that from special operations. But if you can connect with that cause, that mission purpose, then you're more likely to be engaged in that work and be giving meaningful work to do and, and thrive in that environment. Uh, and if you don't connect to it and it's just sort of a paycheck, it's just kind of a job you're trying to get to, as, a, as a transitional step, you probably won't be happy and you probably won't deliver quality work, which of course will infect your, uh, the legacy of your employment <laughs> with that organization. So, what are, uh, what are some types of companies that you've found to be a good fit for vets coming out? Uh, I, I think a lot of the companies that, that fit well for veterans are the organizations that have the resources to invest in those transition programs and training and development because veterans come out with so many amazing skill sets that you do not see usually in your traditional 
a civilian applicant for a job. Uh, they have you know, leadership skills, managerial skills, project management skills, uh, but maybe not the subject matter expertise that those companies need. And that's why we've been doing a, a, trying to do a really good job of educating employers on, here's what you need to be looking for. Just have the training programs for these people uh, in those areas of subject matter expertise. But the problem is not all companies have the resources to do right, that and right. invest in all those very specific training and development programs, whether it be personal or professional development. So the companies that have those resources are going to be some of the larger ones, some of the ones that really focus on culture and integration, like, you know, the Googles and Amazons and Zappos and Netflix yeah, of the world. The, but, the and ch- Chase Banks. And, yeah, yeah. You know. the, the, the larger ones that are going to have those programs. There's a lot of healthcare companies out there that actively recruit veterans and have these amazing programs for them. Care Fusion is one of them. Um, and that I've seen, they're a, a global healthcare company, but they're based in San Diego, and I've done some work with them. But companies like that that actively invest in those things, um, it's much more likely that our veterans are going to be happier in those organizations because those companies are investing time and resources in making sure those people thrive in their companies. We have a ton of questions coming sure. in. We're cool. definitely not going to get to all of them. Uh, this might be a good one for both of you guys, though. Alan Gibson asks on Facebook Live, uh, when are you guys doing a co- when when you guys are doing a covert insertion or an OTB? What do you do with the SDV uh, if that is your transportation, or what do you do with your closed circuit rigs if that's how you swam in from a submarine? Real Throw world or training? Interesting question. Uh, I'll give a couple examples. Uh, let's say you're doing you're coming in, you know, on your drag or rebreather or whatever apparatus you're using. Let's say you're doing a, a ship attack. What we would traditionally do is you know, come up underneath the ship and use magnets to secure our rigs uh, to the bottom of the hull. And then you take one last breath and everybody ascends at the same time to do a hook and climb onto the ship. If you're coming over the beach, you're traditionally going to bring all your gear up and, and throw all that stuff in dry bags and either hump it or stash it <laughs> and hopefully pick it up on the way up, <laughs> depending on how things go. All right, good, good answer. Um, did you? No, I to that? couldn't even begin to talk to you about rebreathers <laughs> or shipboard <laughs> operations or any of that kind of stuff. Um, Gabriel Watson is watching on YouTube and asks: uh, SF culture is born of forty plus recent years of constant reflection, often painful in the face of loss. Do you believe in a corporation without that? Do you believe a corporation without this can truly grasp this? If you look at like the Desert Ones and the. Uh, gothic serpents and these these like painful experiences that special operations has had that we've had to like look at ourselves and figure out how to improve yeah no i think that it it, these are these are things that are hard to obviously translate in in a corporate environment because whether it's special forces or the naval special warfare community or special operations in general again you're talking about decades of brutal training worst combat situations um, that, that have forged that culture, for better or worse, and, and we've tried to make that, those, the, that culture and that environment by design and aligned with our strategic vision, but, um, but it's not perfect. Uh, and companies that, that want to really emulate those types of things really have to invest heavily and focus heavily on the managerial prioritization of, of culture and employee engagement and, uh, and, and values and integrate that into every single thing they do and talk about it all the time. Otherwise, it really doesn't become totally ingrained, and therefore people won't really totally believe in it i'm going to take this one from twitch because this is an interesting one and it's something you've talked about before on the show jack or at least have interviewed these people um freon uh, if i'm saying that right on twitch asks do the seal teams or other sf uh or other sf i don't know what that word is but things from uh 
basically, do you guys get anything from people that were in the Rhodesian Bush War and that type of stuff? We had uh, Tim Bax on yes. the show once, who is a Salute Scout officer, and I know he is doing talks up at like um, the Special Warfare Center at Fort Bragg and some other mm-hmm. places. So I, I think some, I hope some of those lessons are starting to transition over because those guys had a wealth of experience with counterinsurgency. Interesting. All right. Well, I wanted to get into some of those listener yeah. questions. Um, I'll see if there's any others coming up. Um, anything else you wanted to get into here? Not, not that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, you know, just remember the book comes out next week. What's the actual release date? February 27th. February 27th. Yeah, I'm excited. I did want to mention, too, that uh, a, large portion, a large portion of the proceeds support the SEAL Family Foundation. So there's kind of a giving back element to it, too. So it's a, hopefully a, a great book and also supporting a worthy cause. So. That's great. Yeah, I'd actually never heard of the SEAL Family Foundation. We're I mean, kind of a boutique version of the Navy SEAL Foundation. Right, right. I've heard of them before. Yeah, yeah. so S- similar mission. Just focused on the family specifically. Focused on the families, family resiliency, and, and all, all the programs we have mm-hmm. that, that support that for both the families, the operators, and their, and their children. So. Great. Yeah. Awesome. And you're doing a bunch of other stuff while you're here in New York, right? Yes, going to do uh, Fox Business later today at 4 o'clock okay. uh, for the After the Bell show. Nice. And then going to be on uh, Home and Family. Home and Family. It's a it's a national syndicated show, but it's uh, filmed in L.A. Doing that on Friday, so very cool. It's a morning show. I'm not sure what we're going to talk about. Get that's, into that's, that's just <laughs> live television in general. They'll change it on you. Yeah. You're like 30 <laughs> seconds before you go on air. You're like, what? I got to say what? What? Yeah, I'm going to do a lot of googling from my phone a few yeah. minutes before we go on. I mean, I feel like the the news right now, unfortunately, it's it's 24 seven a lot of, of a lot of the school shooting stuff. So that's it's if hard if to I, even if I had to guess based on you know. Our background, if, if they were going to ask about something having to do with the current event, it would be something about gun laws. Yeah. It's uh, hard to even transition, though, on the news from, like, that subject to something totally yeah. different, business world. Yeah. You know? They're asking about gun control, and I, I, I would feel bad if I tried to pitch my book <laughs> yeah. while we're talking about that. Well, you know what they, they like to have us on there, and I hate, I hate this, too, is they want, they want you to give, like, tips. Right. Like tips yeah. on how you can not die. Like, <laughs> come on, really, man? <laughs> Yeah, but once again, check it out and also follow Brent on Twitter and Instagram on Twitter at Brent Gleason on Instagram at Brent underscore Gleason. Um, Check out your columns on Forbes and Inc. as well. Any any stuff to look forward to on there? Uh, I have a weekly column on both. A lot of it's about, you know, business leadership and change and transformation and culture and. Uh, but anything you're working on in particular that people should be excited for? I'm working on a piece that will align uh, closely with the book, as a lot of it does, uh, for nice. next week. And on Inc., they're going to give it some homepage exposure and things like that. Sweet. So, yeah. Very awesome. cool. Well, congratulations on the book, Thank man. Thank you, guys. I mean, it's a huge deal. Get your Appreciate first hardcover out. Yeah. <laughs> Scary. Yeah. <laughs> And, and thanks for coming in studio. Yeah, it means thank a you lot. So you know, yeah, and it, really it's definitely it. always a different feel when you get to like meet people in studio and yeah. shake hands than just doing it on Skype, which yeah. you know, we gladly would do it on Skype again if something comes up uh, that you could speak on, trying to get it in the shot there. There we go. Um, yeah, no, we, we love doing it on Skype, but I mean, it's, it's just great meeting all of you guys and having you here. Thank you. And really yeah. appreciate it. Guys. Yeah, if you guys ever come back into the city, let us know. We're here all know. the time. All right, we'll be happy to hook it up. <laughs> now I know Jack is going to go try to find his daughter, who's patiently awaiting. <laughs> she's like, this to be yeah, over. she's playing with My Little Pony and eating pizza <laughs> over there. So I, I've been kind of keeping an eye on her. Like, I, 
but yeah, she's. Well, Brent's wife office. is also keeping an eye on her, right? Yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> making sure everything is all right. I would, I would like to be eating pizza and playing with my little pony right now. Yeah, sounds like a hey, good we, afternoon. We can, we can go wrestle him away from her right now. She's, I, I don't know how well that would go. I'm not gonna lie, she's a lot more well behaved than the guys who came in for the Big Mountain Heroes documentary, which was, you know, as you could imagine, Leo Jenkins, bunch Nick of babies. Bats. Well, they're just out there drinking at, like, 11 a.m., and at some point, like, people down the hall were like, guys, this is a shared workspace. You can't be so loud here. And, yeah, Nick Betts, I remember, we, I got a video of him on the Instagram, but he was like, yeah, we're getting kicked out of here, a little too rowdy. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, they're coming to New York City, you know, for a big movie premiere. Yeah. They're celebrating. Yeah, they're it's going to happen. Well, last time I brought my daughter in, she actually fell asleep on my coat. I felt kind of bad about that. <laughs> She can nap anywhere. That's a good. That's a good talent. Yes, it is. Now, I, now that I'm I'm 34, I can do that too. Just fall asleep anywhere. Nice. Well, thanks for checking this out, right. guys. As always, share it on you know Facebook the, of the live stream on YouTube, and and then we post up the um, podcast tomorrow. But if you're listening, you, you hear it now, um, and we love getting the word out once again. At Brent Gleason on Twitter, at Brent underscore Bleason, uh, uh, Bleason, at Brent underscore Gleason <laughs> on Instagram. Uh, thanks again, dude. Thanks, great meeting, yeah, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hope that you guys enjoyed that episode with Brent Gleason. Uh, honor having him in studio, but even more important than that, and I, I, I'm sure Brent would agree. Uh, I got to mention this: Jim Downing, the author of The Other Side of Infamy. Um, you heard him on episode 246. At the time, he was the second oldest Pearl Harbor survivor. Um, he's passed away. There's, I, I actually caught it on the internet and saw there were articles going around, and we wrote something as well on softrep.com to honor his memory. But what a great guy. If you want to relive that, check out episode 246. Um, you know, I really never try to pass up on an opportunity to meet these guys, Pearl Harbor survivors, World War II survivors, um, those who survived the Holocaust, because once they're gone, it's cliche to say, but they're gone, you, you know, and we're the last generation that gets to meet these people. So especially if you have young kids, it's important that they know their history and, and get to meet these people given the opportunity. And I've met, um, you know, probably around a dozen or so Holocaust survivors and World War II survivors, uh, World War II veterans, I should say, probably more actually come to think of it. It's a pretty decent amount, but uh, there's not many of them left. So if you get the opportunity to see some of these guys speak in person, because although some of them are just minding their own business at their home and, and making the most of their family life, there are some of them, there's many of them on a mission to get their story out there and tell as many people as they can before they leave this earth. And Jim Downing was one of them. So we salute you, sir. Uh, you'll be very much missed, but it was an honor to speak with you, uh, speaking on behalf of myself as well as Brandon Webb, who did that interview with me. Um, wrapping things up here, as a reminder for all of those who are listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to SoftRep TV our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. 
the latest thing on there is inside the team room snipers. You'll love that. Um, and of course, our premier show training cell follows former special operations forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to SoftRep TV. That's at SoftRepTV.us. And I don't know how much longer we're going to have this offer, but currently we do have a limited time offer that we've had um, for a while now, but I don't know when it expires. 50% off your membership. That's, so that's only $4.99 a month. You're going to want to do that. SoftRepTV.us. And if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the SoftRep Crate Club, you're definitely going to want to do that ASAP. It's a subscription to get a box of badass tactical and survival gear delivered to your door every month. Here's the kicker. All of that gear, it's handpicked and tested by former special ops guys, so you know you're getting quality gear that's going to work when you need it to. Um, We've talked about the Cry Precision um, Ballistic Shield for your backpack, the med kit picked out by Chris Tonto Peranto, so much cool stuff. And you don't just get great gear with your subscription. You're also supporting a veteran-owned and run company. To subscribe and start getting your gear, visit CrateClub.us and check out all the tiers that we have. I mean, the premium, if you can afford it, is the way to go. I've never been disappointed with the premium Crate Club, and that's CrateClub.us. And you know what? Before I get out of here, I got a bunch of package. I'm usually I usually get a bunch of books sent to the office um, of just people who want to come on the show, people who are coming on the show. I'm looking at the corner of this office, and it's just fucking stacked with books. It's insane. <laughs> um, but I got a bigger package before I recorded this, and I was like, hmm, what is this? And it was our friend Matthew from shopbfam.com sent us a lot of cool gear, some patches, tactical patches, uh, T-shirts, stickers, and I was checking out the website. And if you're a firearms person, um, definitely worth checking out, shopbfam.com. Uh, you know, we have so many great guests coming up this month. You're going to be really excited coming up in March, I should say, the, the rest of this month and then March. A lot of people, um, I'm not going to give it away, but like that have been really requested for a long, long time now that we were able to make some contact with um, that'll actually be coming on in March. One guy in particular is like definitely one of the most requested guests. So I don't want to say anything until it happens. You never know things fall, fall through, but uh, be on the lookout for that. As always, you guys know this, but we put up shows every Wednesday every friday and uh enjoy have a great week everyone and uh check out softrep.com as always for all the latest and we appreciate all the feedback you've been listening to soft rep radio new episodes up every wednesday and friday for all of the great content from our veteran journalists join us and become a team room member today at softrep.com Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at SoftRep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.